good for Hazel and me to be here. We came on uh, Friday and have had an opportunity of meeting one by one with a number of you in different contexts, and we're enjoying every minute of it, especially the service this morning. Hasn't the singing been grand? It really has been good, both yours and theirs, uh, equally, and uh, you've chosen all the right things for a Britisher this morning. Uh, you go to many services and they either chose hymns you don't know or they choose tunes you don't know, but with a good British tradition, you did quite well for us this morning. Um, John Wesley's end, Can It Be, and Offer a Thousand Tongues, and so on. Uh, I'm glad also to have with us Luan Yoki and Peter Torrey from World Vision. Would they just stand so that if you have any questions about World Vision, you could ask them, are they here? Luan? Okay, one of them here. Thank you. Uh, if you have anything you would like to find out about us, then uh, please talk to her. I think this idea of Boise sponsoring Luga in Senegal is a great idea. I've been there in Luga in Senegal in May in 1986, right at the beginning of this project, and I tell you it is a needy area. It's the most needy province in that country of Senegal, which is totally needy, and our work there is going along rather remarkably after a very difficult start, and we are catching the attention of the authorities, including the president who comes from that region, and the ministers who've been along and saying that we are at last arresting the drift from the countryside into the towns, which is, if we learn to do something like that, able to be repeated in many other different parts of the world. And the idea of Boise uh, people getting behind this, I'd love to see your children learning about Senegal in school. I'd like to see your media showing pictures about Senegal and what's happening there. And your business people and others, your civic authorities getting behind this. And uh, if this can happen, then I believe you could do something extremely significant for the kingdom of God in the world. Now, for your mission conference this week, you have the title, uh, Knowing God's Heart for the Needy. I think that's a good title because it takes us away from the needy being the starting point and takes us back to God as being the starting point because it's how he sees us in the world from which we get our inspiration. And if we want to know the heart of God for the needy, I believe we can see it in the well-known story of Jesus about the Good Samaritan. And I would like to read that with you now from Luke 10 and verse 29 to 37. I'm reading from the Good, from the good News Bible. The teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered, there was once a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when robbers attacked him, stripped him and beat him up, leaving him half dead. It so happened that a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the man, he walked on by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite also came along, went over, looked at the man and then walked on by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling that way came upon the man, and when he saw him, his heart was filled with pity. He went over to him, poured oil and wine on his wounds, and bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own animal 
and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he told the innkeeper, and when I come back this way, I will pay you whatever else you spend on him. And Jesus concluded, in your opinion, which of these three acted like a neighbor toward the man attacked by robbers? And the teacher of the law answered, the one who was kind to him. And Jesus replied, you go then and do the same. It's a great story. I have in my imagination the picture in my mind of the inn on that road. There is a place where they take you today on the way down from Jerusalem to Jericho and they say that's the inn of the Good Samaritan. I've been there. I've gone down the road, went down the uh, more difficult road when we were there earlier in our lives. And I believe that if you want to know how God sees the needy, you have one very dramatic picture in this person who was robbed on the road. Let's just go over the details. He was physically attacked, wounded. They took all he had, took all he had, even his clothes, leaving him naked and exposed. That's a very humiliating thing to happen. We once had a friend, Andrew Craig in Nairobi, who was robbed and mugged. They stopped his car, they pulled him out, they took everything he had, they even took his clothes, all but his underwear, and threw the uh, key of his car into the ditch and left him there. man of about 71 at the time, who had done nothing but help people all his life. It was a very humiliating experience for him. This man had even worse, left naked and exposed, callously abandoned, half dead, dying, that is, by the roadside. And I think Jesus is telling us today that the needy are people who have been robbed. Something that belonged to them has been unjustly taken away. They didn't seek it to be taken away. They didn't want it to be taken away. They don't like it. They're crippled as a result and often cannot help themselves. Lloyd Ogilvy on the Presbyterian television program from Hollywood had an accident recently in Scotland where he found himself with an injured knee very far from where anybody was likely to pass. And he tells of the harrowing experience of dragging himself backwards on slippery wet pathways for two hours and 45 minutes before he got anywhere within sight of anybody who could help him. This man couldn't even do that. He had to stay there, and if somebody came, somebody came. If nobody came, he would have died. And the needy are those who cannot help themselves very often. And we who've had the opportunity in life to be able to make efforts and do things for ourselves, need to realize that there are situations where that is just not possible. There are many out there on the road of life and they've been robbed and many of them are children. And it's the children that we in World Vision focus on. Children have been robbed of food in the Sahel on the edge of the Sahara Desert. They're malnourished. They don't have clean water to drink and they get dysentery all the time. 
and very many of them die from diarrhea. That's very strange to people here. But thousands, millions of children die every year because nobody has taught them to keep the children drinking when they have dysentery. And so what they die of is dehydration. And if they would just be given a drink with clean water, six parts sugar and one part salt, there are thousands upon thousands who wouldn't die, but they don't have that information. They've been robbed of the information. They don't get enough food of the right kind and their growth is stunted both physically and mentally. I've seen a child and said, how old is the child? And expected an answer like three or four and they've told me seven years. The result of malnutrition. And there are children who've been robbed of health in the city slums. They're supposed to have a health service. But the money to pay it is not given because people cheat with their taxes, or if it is, it disappears in the costs of inefficient bureaucracy before it gives them their immunization shots or the health education they're supposed to get and that they need. And in these slums there are open sewers for everything. Terrible stench. In the narrow passageways between the crowded shacks in which they live, the children play around these things. They get tuberculosis, they get polio, they get whooping cough, they get diphtheria, malaria, sometimes cholera, typhoid, and many die. And they suffer from burns and other accidents that could be prevented, and they've been robbed of health. Fifteen million children a year in the world die that don't need to die. Fifteen million, forty thousand a day. Many children have been robbed of innocence by foreign tourists, pedophiles in Manila in the Philippines or in Bangkok in Thailand where they take little boys of seven and eight and little older and satisfy themselves sexually and give them dollars that they couldn't otherwise get anywhere near to and that their family needs. Or you find young girls who want an education. And the only way they can get the money to get to school is by selling their bodies and they do that. And pay their way through college like that. Robbed of innocence. Many of them have been robbed of childhood itself by being pressed into slave labor in India. Little fellow spending from dawn to dusk in a small room with a loom, canvas, pieces of wool making the rugs that are so popular in some of our homes here. Their little fingers can do the work fast. They don't have to pay them as much as adults. Their family needs the money. And slave labor of children is very prominent in India and in Thailand. Or they make these little trinkets that are so popular there. The air is filled with the metal dust. Their lungs are congested. And their health is spoiled. They may be at that seven days a week. Robbed of childhood. 
hardly see the daylight at all. Many have been robbed of fun. I've been in the refugee camps in many countries and most recently on the border of Afghanistan. Desolate places. Nothing for the children to do. No place to play except dust. And so they play war games about shooting and fighting and stabbing and so on and they mimic their older brothers who go off for one month and twelve across the border into Afghanistan to continue the fighting with the Mujahideen. And the only games the children play are war games. And there are some who have been robbed of fathers and mothers in the wars currently being fought in Ethiopia, Kampuchea, Mozambique, Sudan, Angola, Sri Lanka, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Philippines. Currently, every day, there are children who are orphaned because their father or mother is killed in the war. These children have been robbed and they're sick and helpless and ready to die by the side of many roads in life in many countries. And above all, they've been robbed of the knowledge of a father, the Father, who loves them and of the Savior who died to save them and of the Holy Spirit who could give them the wisdom and the strength they need to live a full life as they were intended to do in the will of God. And so we still have people robbed by the road in life. And we still, therefore, need Samaritans, many Samaritans. Let's just stop and ask, who and what was the Samaritan? Well, he was reasonably well off. He had a donkey. He had his own transportation, not common at that time. He had oil and wine in his baggage. He had money enough to stay in a hotel and pay for somebody else to stay with him and get more money to pay if that man had to stay longer. There were people who didn't like our Samaritan, who despised him because of where he came from, for he was a Samaritan. In personality, he had compassion, a compassionate attitude, took pity on the man, it says. He saw further than his own kind. It didn't deter him that the man on the road was a Jew whose people despised him and those like him. He still helped And when he took something on, he saw it through to the end, even if it went on costing him. And all that he had was available for others. And so was he, and so was his time. Yes, Samaritans are rare people. We need more of them to restore to the people who've been robbed by the road something of what they have lost. And as I thought about this, I said, we need to find more Samaritans. And start sending them down the roads of life to take care of the many robbed people and their children whom we know are lying there. And that's what World Vision is about. And I began to imagine myself or someone else in a control center in Jerusalem. You see, you start with an Eastern context in the Bible and you end up trying to westernize it and organize it. And I thought myself in a control center there in Jerusalem with all the roads going down and thinking of the people who might be lying by all the roads and wanted to get some kind of system whereby we would know where the person was robbed by the road, could find a Samaritan, send him down, make sure he saw him and they got the help. And as I went on with this thought, I decided I'm going to very soon run out of Samaritans. And if you're trying to do it for the world as God is, 
He's short of Samaritans too. So where am I going to get more Samaritans? Then it came to me, we'll need to make more Samaritans. And how are we going to make more Samaritans? What are we going to make them out of? And then it started hitting me. We've got to make Samaritans out of priests. Priest in that day was born into a priestly family. It was his calling because he was in that family. The temple to him was his bread and butter. It was there for him. It was his job. It was his profession. It was his career. He was not about other people. He just did his function, did his part. Others did theirs. That was it. If anyone dropped between the cracks to fluck, they should look after themselves like he did. Are we still a priest today like that? Pastors, priests, ministers, evangelists who only have half a gospel or less and little of it for the poor. Jesus said it was good news for the poor and their children. How many Samaritans we would have if we could change all the priests into Samaritans. We need to make Samaritans out of Levites. The lay people, but also born into it, with humbler duties, more menial, mundane tasks they did about the temple. He was more in touch, maybe just because he was a layman, often the laymen are. He was a bit concerned, went over and looked, but not enough to make him do something. Prepared to look, but not to love. Paralyzed from action by something or other. Maybe it was fear that they'd get him too. Maybe it was lack of know-how. Maybe he'd never put on a bandage on anybody before. Maybe it was self-interest. Maybe he had other priorities, things he was hurrying to do, a deadline to meet. I believe the Levites, the laymen, are easier to change. And if we do, how many more Samaritans we could get. But you see, the thought kept going. We've got to make Samaritans out of innkeepers. These are the people who wait for others to be brought to them and expect to be paid for anything they do and want guarantees for any future loss. That's how I read the story. Calculating business heads. Money is money. And the innkeepers might be the relief industry or the welfare bureaucracy or the development specialists who live off what others do for the poor and their children. What have we made Samaritans out of them? What it would do for the administration of social security if all the officers were Samaritans? Is it impossible? Is it impossible? Is anybody trying? We just leave them. This might be the people like us who are involved in third world aid. Are we Samaritans? First time I preached this message was on October 1st, the day of the earthquake in Los Angeles. We had a day of prayer. We open our financial year every year by praying on the first day of the year because World Vision operates with very little reserves. For two years we've had no more than four or five days working capital and a budget of close to 120 million. 
So it's a faith organization. We're going to do all we're going to do in Luga, but the money's not there yet. So we begin our fiscal year with a day of prayer. We had an earthquake on our day of prayer. I spoke on this subject in the day of prayer. But one of our vice presidents, Dean Hirsch, challenged the whole company in the day of prayer to an employee campaign to raise $500,000 over three years from our own number for the Child Survival Project in Mali in West Africa, as uh, Eric, as Chris said, to the, to the right, to the east of Senegal. And there's been a good response. Because, you see, the challenge was, were we Samaritans? And now the staff are challenging one another. And 270,000 of the 500,000 from the, the staff has already been pledged and is coming in monthly, deducted from the paychecks. And only 25% of our employees so far have, have pledged. We're about 700 total. But we want to be Samaritans. We don't want just to be employees. So we need to make Samaritans out of the innkeepers. We need to make Samaritans out of the lawyers who ask Jesus trick questions. Hmm? I was in South Africa in July. And somebody was telling me that the European Economic Community are worried about where their money is going. They give 27 million rand to the South African Council of Churches and 9 million of it is spent on lawyers' fees. I believe that people who are being wrongly put in detention need to be defended and get all the help they can, but I don't think the lawyers need to be making a packet out of fighting apartheid. I like the story of the lawyer's office that had a picture of a cow with one client pulling at its horns and the other client pulling at its tail and the lawyer sitting underneath milking it. I tell you, as a Britisher coming to North America, you're a litigious society. You don't have a legal profession any longer. You have a legal industry. And every conceivable thing that can be done to spin out the bill and write another letter or make another phone call to take another action is taken. And we need to get lawyers who are Samaritans who are acting because they believe in the need of their client who will fight for justice for the poor and not merely to win the case and make their own reputation. We need Samaritan lawyers. Yeah, and come to it, don't we need to make Samaritans out of the thieves and the robbers? Jesus said sometimes people like that will go into the kingdom faster than the Pharisees and others whom he mentioned. But who's asking them? Who's believing that it's possible that there might be generosity there that could be challenged? Who's in touch with the muggers? We just write them off fatalistically. But there are Samaritans out there among the thieves and the robbers. And we need to make our institutions more Samaritan. We need to make the temple a Samaritan temple. Jesus said a little later in Luke's Gospel that that temple that was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, they had turned into a den of thieves. 
no wonder when the priest went down from the temple, he passed by the, Samar- the man who was robbed on the road on the other side. His institution made him like that. Yeah, we need Samaritan denominational headquarters. We need Samaritan Bible colleges and Samaritan seminaries and Samaritan denominations from top to bottom. We need the religious institution to be Samaritanized. Just invented a new word. (laughs) And we need the city to be made Samaritan. Whether it's Jerusalem, the capital city, or Jericho, the provincial city, we need them to be changed. So that they don't create the conditions that breed thieves and robbers or fail to police the roads so that they can, the thieves and the robbers can attack and mug the weak. Yeah, we could do with Samaritan policemen. Some are. And then I thought I was finished. And I realized. There was another lot of people there that day when Jesus told the story. There were the disciples who heard it and wrote the story down. So we need to make Samaritans out of disciples of Jesus. Because you don't automatically become a Samaritan when you become a disciple. We need to make Samaritans out of the impetuous Peters who rush in where angels fear to tread. Much noise and fury from some disciples signifying nothing. We need to make Samaritans out of doubting, pessimistic Thomases who will always give you a dozen reasons for not doing what clearly needs to be done. We need to make Samaritans out of vengeful, heresy-hunting Jameses and Johns who can't abide those who don't think as they think. We need to make Samaritans out of the contemplative Nathaniels who are always given to study and reflection and meditation and never get up and do anything. We need to make Samaritans out of thoughtful, faithful, companionate, considerate Andrews. And nationalistic, patriotic, republican, conservative Simon Zelotes. And greedy, materialistic Judases who have their hand in some till or other. Or nondescript disciples like James the Less and Judas not Iscariot. I like these two. Glad they're among the twelve. James the Less, Judas not Iscariot. The only thing we know about him is what he wasn't. <laughs> Some like that among us. And remember, you're among the twelve. And if we can make a Samaritan out of you, we're doing okay and so are you. And we need to make Samaritans out of literary accounting Matthews. We might need to get them to write the project proposals or look after the accounting in a Samaritan attitude. Yeah, we need to make Samaritans out of disciples. Because we're all mirrored in the twelve somewhere or other. Every one of us. 
And they had to learn this and we have to learn it too. And that might be where we want to start. We've got a whole city out there, Boise. We've got a whole valley, Treasure Valley, I think it's called. Could we set ourselves a goal to make Samaritans out of this community? And let's start with ourselves in the churches, but let's not stay with ourselves in the churches. As I see it, there are two movements that the Christian church is responsible for. One is getting people nearer the kingdom, the other is getting them into the kingdom. You get them nearer the kingdom by the love of the neighbor. For when the lawyer said the nice words in Mark's account of this story about loving your neighbor as you love yourself, Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom, you're coming on. Through his grasp of the love of the neighbor. And so you can come, you can shorten your distance from the kingdom by the love of the neighbor. You can only come into the kingdom through the Christ, the king becoming the king in your life. But we've got these two tasks to do in our communities. To bring people closer to the kingdom by the values that they have and the actions that they do. And to get them into the kingdom by submission to the Christ. But we could begin with ourselves, making disciples, Samaritans. Start here. How do we do that? I don't think it's all that difficult. If you'll start with yourself. How do we do it? Well, let's just go back to the Samaritan and think about him. He had his donkey. Was it for himself or was it for somebody else? You have your car. Is it for yourself or is it for anybody that needs it? He had his oil and his wine and his baggage. Was it for himself or was it available for somebody else who was wounded? He had his money. Was he only going to pay his own bills or was he going to pay somebody else's bills who, for the time being, didn't have the means to do it? And was he going to finish after one shot when a person needed a longer haul? And his time. Was he going to give this priority or was he going to give his own concerns priority? See, one of the things that intrigues me from psychology today is they're telling us behaviors precede values. You don't learn your values and then start behaving differently. Sometimes you do. But probably the weight of the research says the behaviors come before. How did you get your values? By your father and mother saying, do this and don't do that, and do this and don't do that, and you have a whole inheritance of people starting your behavior moving and your values come from that experience. John Wesley had a problem when he was struggling for faith. He was a man who was into works in a big way. And he said to Peter Boller, the Moravian, who was helping him, I have problems about faith. And Boller said to him, preach faith until you have it and then preach it because you have it. And there are some things we need to do ahead of the time when our whole heart and mind are carried by them. And they have to do with our cars or our donkeys or our oil and our wine and our money and our time and our calendars and our priorities. 
So we could start behaving like Samaritans with the things that we currently have in our possession. And I believe that progressively we would become natural at the process. Remember Jesus. It's intriguing to me. It says about him, he thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God. And as we sang in the hymn, and can it be, he emptied himself. Though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. He didn't hold on to anything he had. He put it all on the altar for you and for me and eventually went to the cross as he did it. He was the ultimate Samaritan. And the cross is the ultimate mark and badge of the Samaritan. We can be like that as we follow him and allow his spirit to dwell in our minds. You see, the cross is not only the means for our forgiveness. The the cross is the pattern and the standard for our living. And you could start this morning, today, before you're, you're out. Maybe you want to take one of these love loafs on the way out as just to remind you of when you get home what the preacher said and you've got more to think about as well as something to put in it. Maybe there's a book out there on the book table that you need to get your eye on the people who've been robbed by the road a bit more so that the thing starts to flow. But I believe that's what we in World Vision are about. We're about making more Samaritans out of priests and Levites and innkeepers and robbers and lawyers and disciples and institutions even. And cities. And I invite you to be part of the process. Let's pray. Lord, we hear the word of Jesus to the lawyer. Go and do likewise. And we ask for grace to respond positively now. Amen.